like I say, identity is so big. It touches every part of our lives. And the only other thing that like touches so many parts of our lives is probably fintech, right? There's some kind of economic exchange happening all over the place, but they're also, you know, part of that equation is the trust exchange. Obviously, if there's less trust, it means there's more risk, which means, you know, insurance premiums go up or like whatever, right? Or like the risk of the transaction goes up or something. And and in fact, a lot of the products that we use today are just, you know, they just price in the risk of like fraud and things like that into the price. And so I guess... Trust, identity, and money all go really, you know, closely hand in hand. This is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, featuring the founders, funders, and contributors, and most importantly, the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital, and on today's episode... Identity matters. That's right. We're talking all about the coming wave of ID tech. And we're so excited to welcome a founder with Montana family roots who grew up in Idaho and now lives in Utah. Talk about the epitome of a Rocky Mountain founder. Meet Riley Hughes, who is the co-founder and CEO of Trinsic. Hi, Riley. Welcome to Found in the Rockies. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, before today, before we dig into all things identity related, I would love for you, could you please verify your identity for the podcast? Could you do that for me? (laughs) Yeah. If only there was an easy way, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just for our listeners. That's kind of, I kind of say it as a joke, but that's kind of the crux of what we're going to be talking about today, right? Like identity, how we do this in a virtual world. Obviously there's all kinds of implications with, you know, well, We've been saying AI a lot lately on the show, so I'll say it again. But you know, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of implications here. We're gonna dive into all that. But before we do, why don't you tell me a little bit more just about who you are, where you grew up, and what led you to this place and this opportunity to found Trinsic? Yeah, thanks. Well, I'm Riley Hughes. Yeah, well, I grew up in Lewiston, Idaho, which is a town in northern Idaho. I grew up with, you know, awesome family and all of that. My, my dad's side of the family, you know, no, nobody in my family had gone to college, but everybody was kind of entrepreneurs. So my grandpa was owned some mines in Montana. My dad grew up in Montana, starting companies you know, of all different kinds, installing, you know, V equipment and selling used cars and things like that. And so, and my mom grew up in Montana as well. They ended up moving to Idaho before I was born and I grew up there. Eventually I moved to Utah and ended up spending a couple of years in Taiwan on a religious mission. And when I was in Taiwan, I met my, my very first sort of coworker companion there. His name's Michael, and he was from Utah. His dad was an early salesperson at, you know, kind of the early Utah tech scene. I think he was a pretty successful early salesperson at Omniture and then went on to do a couple of other startups in, in Utah. He co-founded one called, it's called Tracking First, and now it's called... Oh, yeah. So he co-founded a company called Clarivine. Mm-hmm. And by the way, one of one of Next Frontier Capital's portfolio companies. That's right. Yeah. 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 So anyway, I, I say all of that to give the context that Michael knew a little something about, you know, tech and startups, which is something that I knew, you know, nothing about. My, my version of startups was like a lawn mowing company or something yeah. like that, right? Lemonade and stand, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so Michael was like, no, there's this like really cool kind of a company you can start uh, in technology. And here's what that looks like. And so when we got home from Taiwan, we sort of kept in close touch. We've been good friends and and eventually decided we wanted to do a company at some point. But neither of us had really, you know, he had dabbled in some side projects and so had I, but neither of us had really found the opportunity to work together. And it was a certain point where I thought, you know, I just want to keep my options open. I will go work, you know, somewhere that can give my resume a nice stamp, right? A nice positive signal on my resume, somewhere like McKinsey or Bain or Goldman or something like that. Because like I say, no, nobody in my family had gone to college before me. And, you know, I came from Idaho with heritage in like rural Montana. And so it's not like I had a great network in, in you know, anywhere with kind of a you know, prestigious job titles or anything like that. So I ended up wanting to differentiate my resume from a lot of the other, you know, people who looked and sounded a lot like me in the finance program at BYU where I was going to school. And I ended up 
getting a job at a company called Sovereign Foundation. And Sovereign was a nonprofit working on identity on the blockchain. And I was coming in as the first employee to help them launch a cryptocurrency. So it's like five different like resume differentiating things in that one sentence, right? I thought, oh, this is... Yeah, I was gonna say, you didn't get one stamp, you got like five. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was thinking, you know, this is gonna be my ticket to like getting an interview with, with Bain or something, right? So I, I ended, up, ended up joining Sovereign Foundation and realizing, wow, there is a lot of work to be done here in digital identity. It's kind of remarkable, the state of things in this world. And I realized there was so much more to do in this domain that I actually never ended up pursuing other opportunities. I ended up staying, you know, diving deep into this very niche kind of overlooked, often overlooked area. And, you know, we're, I'm still here, you know, six years later, trying to continuing, trying to solve some of the problems that exist here. Yeah. Amazing. And just for our listeners too, that aren't familiar with Sovereign, it's S-O-V-R-I-N. Fascinating organization in terms of the founding story, but what really, what, what was the mission of this organization? And I know it's evolved over time, but just generally yeah. it's a, it's cool. I want, I want to make sure we highlight it. Yeah. Yeah. Sovereign's mission was identity for all. Mm-hmm. turns out there's like, you know, identity is really important and it's something we all take for granted. Identity is an enabler. And if you don't have an identity, you can't get a bank account. You can't travel. You can't, you know, get access to, you know, the same kinds of healthcare that other people can or government benefits if you are, you know, down on your luck or something. And so, you know, identity is important. Mm-hmm. And and there's, you know, over a billion people on earth who have no legal form of identity. Mm-hmm. And Sovereign's mission was was to try to help address that. That was the kind of social impact mission. And as a nonprofit, they were also funded by corporations who had problems to solve as well. But yeah, that that was the high high level problem to solve that Sovereign was going after. Yeah. You know, philosophically, I'd love to peel this back a little bit because philosophically, I think, especially in this country, in the United States, we have this we sort of tie the notion of identity to a driver's license. And it, it's weird. It's really strange to me. You know, my son is just about, he's got his permit now. and He's really excited this fall. He's going to get his license. But it's like, that's a driver's license. It's not an identity, right? I mean, other countries, you got passports is more the standard. But like, explain to us why this perception of identity is really strange and sort of skewed that, that I use a driver's license to like get into a bar. It's meant to show law enforcement that you're eligible to drive on a public roadway, right? Right, right. And yet we use it for all kinds of things. And the reason for that is because, you know, when you want to get into a bar and you want to prove that you're of a certain age, if you just tell the bartender, I really am a certain age, they're going to say, yeah, I don't trust you. And if all of your friends are around and they say, no, really, they are actually that certain age, they're still not going to trust you. So- you know, what, what will they trust? Well, you could imagine a world where you go, you know, bring, essentially you need to find something that the bouncer at the bar does trust and then bring some attestation from that source to the bouncer. So maybe that bouncer trusts your university and the university maybe issued you a student ID that says that you're of a certain age, or maybe the bouncer trusts your bank did a good job, you know, and, and and that your bank did a good job of vetting you first and all of that. And so, but it's kind of like if the bouncer had to like mentally keep track of like every possible trustworthy thing and all of that, it just gets kind of complex. And imagine like training a new bouncer and saying, well, we accept these 10 forms of ID, but not these other four. Uh-huh. And if it's one of these three, they have to present two forms of ID to like, I don't know. It's just like yeah. building that like level of trust to where the bouncer can reduce the risk of letting an underage person into a bar sufficiently so that they can do business is something that, you know, that all these problems converge to basically say like they, they trust essentially a government issued ID because they trust that the DMV did a good job of vetting you before giving you a driver's license. And that is actually what you're doing. When you're presenting your driver's license, they don't care whether you can drive. They probably likely don't even care if the driver's license is expired or revoked or suspended because all they actually care about is that the drivers, that, that the DMV did a good job of doing identity proofing on you and validation and verifying you before giving you the driver's license in the first place. And as long as you have that, you can, you can pretty much prove your age, right? Yeah, makes sense. The other thing that I find intriguing about this, and I love, I want to keep going down this vein because I also have to trust 
the entity I'm giving it to, right? Because like, for instance, with my driver's license, I'm not trusting them just with my age. I'm actually giving them other things like my full date of birth, my address, my height, my weight. What about that element of trust? And have we gotten a little lax with with that when we just like give an ID to somebody? Yeah, I mean, this may not be a concern, you know, for you or for other, you know, but or, or for me, but I have heard feedback from, you know, young women or something who are giving a driver's license over to a bouncer who looks kind of scary and the bouncer now knows their home address and their weight and their, you know, eye color, hair color, whatever, all of that. So yeah, it is a real concern and different sort of demographics face different concerns they're related to their identity in different facets of their life. We're talking about the bar example, but there are there are other other kinds of you know, people who, who other challenges with that. And, you know, absolutely. Yes. I think, unfortunately we as people have kind of gotten into this mode. Like when was the last time you saw a data breach happen? It was probably like today and you just forgot about it because it's so commonplace. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like, like my data was already breached in the Equifax hack like six years ago. So, you know, at some level, I've kind of lost hope in some of that. And I think most consumers have as well. They kind of just feel like, now oh, my data is out there anyway. So what's the point? I think fortunately, you know, there, I see a line of sight to solving that problem. But for now, I think most people feel a little bit of, you know, apathy toward sharing their data, which is, you know, understandable. You know, that said, people also, I think are expect, you know, they are getting more hesitant about it. I think if there's a good enough value proposition, like a like like a nice party happening inside of a bar or something, then they may be willing to do it. And if the risk of the bouncer, you know, like, I don't know, is low enough. But there are definitely other cases where, where people are much more hesitant to share their their information too. Yeah. So so really with, and, and that was a great kind of background on the relevance of this, because I, I want to make sure people realize that identity is more than just like a piece of paper, which is like, you know, I, I feel like the turn of the century kind of like, you know, way that we we've been doing this for, you know, over a hundred years. So I'm glad we kind of laid that out. Uh, And specifically, what was it like for you as a guy with, you know, a BS in finance from BYU jumping into this, this space and specifically into blockchain, like right out of the gate? I mean, how was that for you just to learn and, and, you know, get over the buzz and the froth and and really buckle down to, to focus on solving real problems and doing it well? Yeah, I was really fortunate, I think, to be, you know, right place, right time kind of a situation. Sovereign was a really great place to start because I was mentored by brilliant people who had not only, you know, decades of domain experience, but also were just very smart and willing to spend the time with me to bring me up to speed. In addition, I probably, you know, worked, you know, eight hours a day at that job. And then I read four hours a day of just, you know, papers and, blog posts and books and all kinds of things on these topics and just had to try to con- compress as much learning as I could into as short a period of time as I could so that I could become the domain expert that I needed to be to do my job well because sovereign was sort of you know needed I mean it was again as, as one of the early employees I you know got thrown things that were a little bit out of my pay grade so to speak and I had I was expected to kind of punch above my weight and so you know I was like flying to Finland to speak at a conference about this stuff and I'm like gee I better like read up on like the laws of, like the European like what, what how do the Europeans do this stuff right so it, you know it was, it was it was a very cool fortunate experience that I was able to be thrown into the deep end like that but uh, yeah it was a lot of reading a lot a lot of reading yeah well I got to I got to applaud you on that cuz I mean I mean even since we first met I was I was blown away with your domain expertise and just really have always thought of you as, as a real thought leader in this space, specifically the self-sovereign identity space, which we'll get to that in a minute. But what, so, so you got this compressed learning at one point, I'm sorry, at what point did you decide what, you know, sovereigns doing, doing great things. They're definitely like, you know, paving a way here for this category to emerge. At what point did you say, you know what, I'm going to actually step step out of the parent and do something specific and build a solution specifically for self-sovereign identity what how did that what was that journey like yeah you know i left one part of the story out which is after i joined sovereign a month later i called my friend michael to kind of take it back full circle and i said michael 
this is, I think, where we should do something. I don't know what. I mean, this is very early, but holy cow, this market is very big. Turns out there's lots of people on earth and all of them have an identity and they all use it across every facet of their life in interacting with the institutions that they, you know, interact with on a day-to-day basis. And, and there's lots of problems here to solve. So why don't you come join me at Sovereign? He ended up being the first software engineer hired at Sovereign. And so we were there for a couple of years together. And my job at Sovereign was to try to drive adoption of the technology. Because just like any uh, anything, just like it, pretty much anything you carry around in your wallet, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. Imagine if you had a credit card in your pocket, but nobody accepted it. It's like, what is that credit card useful for? It's like scraping ice off your windshield or something. I don't know. Just, like the, a credit card is only as useful as the ubiquity of its adoption, essentially. And you know, you could have a driver's license that's useful for showing police, but if you if none of the bars are willing to accept that for your age verification, then it's not actually that useful. So there's kind of two sides to the identity equation. There's the, you know, getting your identity in a digital form. And then there's who are all the parties that are willing to accept this thing. So my role at Sovereign for the two years that I was there, whether it was in business development, governance, crypto economics, whatever, was focused on the adoption problem and kind of the business and economic side of that equation. And Michael was focused on, he was spending a lot of time in the open source community, writing open source code and doing trainings. On, I mean, he, he similarly, I mean, I don't know if he went to, ever went to Finland, but you know, he was in all kinds of, you know, Hong Kong and all kinds of places teaching developers about how to use this, this new paradigm of digital identity and the, specifically the open source stuff that Sovereign was doing. And so we were both there trying to crack this nut. And we met our third co-founder, Thomas Love. And Thomas Love was building open source code, right? And was just pumping code out like crazy. He was clearly a leader in the open source space. And it came to a point where I kind of realized the amount of impact that I could have on driving adoption of the technology within Sovereign was limited. And I was doing all that I could, but I wanted to do more. And the way for us to do more was to build a product that could help companies adopt the solution that we were all interested in driving and, and, and actually go out and really solve business problems for companies, you know, boots on the ground and, and learn more deeply about the problems they were facing hands-on. And so Michael Tomislav and I at that point decided that, yeah, the timing was right. And, you know, there was also a little bit of an element of the blockchain space of which Sovereign was very much a part goes through cyclical kind of fundraising and, you know, bull and bear cycles and things like that. And, and I just, you know, there's a, there's an element of like my comfort level with the finances situation and my own job security that I was facing as well. So I figured that I, I didn't, you know, I was never super dogmatic about the cryptocurrency side of things or the, or the blockchain side of things. So I wanted to abstract myself one layer away from being directly exposed to that you know, at Trinsic, we are not blockchain developers ourselves, although we do use blockchains like Sovereign and Ethereum and things like that, but we don't do the kind of blockchain development. And so I wanted to kind of get one step away from some of that exposure of that volatility and and build something that was, you know, sustained by businesses as opposed to by investors, if that makes sense. Absolutely. You know, when a lot of our listeners probably think about crypto and blockchain, well, number one, they probably think of them as sort of one and the same. And there's obviously some connections, but they're not necessarily the same thing. But they also probably also go to immediately think of crypto trading. They think of NFTs. They think, And so could you clearly define or kind of describe to us why or how blockchain as a platform is necessary to do what you're doing and necessary as sort of a tool, not necessarily necessary as like buzz, right? Or froth. Yeah. 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 As you mentioned, I think the word tool is exactly the right one. We use blockchain at Trinsic as a public key infrastructure. Mm-hmm. There are other public key infrastructures too, like, you know, DNS and X509 certs and, you know, other approaches to solving that problem. There's PGP and there's other other things, you know, that we could use, other tools. But it turns out that blockchain is a useful one because, number one, blockchains are really, really available. 
they don't really go down because anybody can run a node and keep consensus going. And so they kind of exist sort of independently of centralized parties. And that's nice. I think they're, they're publicly available and globally resolvable. And, and that's really what we're interested in. They're also permanent. So when you put an identifier or a public key up there, you can be sure that, that you know, it'll stay up there and, and the things that you do with that key will continue to be resolvable into the future, which means that if you, you know, if Trinsic ever goes out of business, all of our customers will still have public keys up on chain and they can continue doing the things that they're doing. Or at least, you know, if imagine some DMV issued driver's licenses using Trinsic and then Trinsic, you know, all three founders got hit by a bus on the same day or something and the company goes under, uh, you know, those driver's licenses that were issued would still be resolvable into the future because it's not only dependent on Trinsic. Now, I see. You guys shouldn't have been driving the bus if you have driver's licenses. What are you doing? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm teasing. Yeah. No, it makes sense. I get it. I get it. So essentially what you're saying is you you could implement this using some other technology stack, but blockchain as a choice and as a tool is optimal for this approach. Is that is that right? Yeah, it's useful. And actually, we do support traditional PKI using DNS, and we support blockchain as well. So blockchain is an optional component for our customers to use. And it's it's not actually the default for our customers. Our default is blockchain-free. However, many of our customers opt into using blockchain. It, it is, you know, it's it's basically equivalent, and it's, it's useful, and they get to say that they're using blockchain and, and all of that. But yeah, it's a tool to solve the problem at hand, I think, we tend to be not quite as like dogmatic about it. We tend to be pretty pragmatic about where those benefits are and and expose those features to our customers um, and let them choose whether they want to opt into that. Awesome. And as somebody, Riley, who has has this very compressed and impressive learning cycle in the space, is this, do you believe that this is really one of the hallmark use cases in self-sovereign identity on blockchain? Or are there are there others that you think are comparable to just utility in terms of implementing on blockchain? Hmm. I wonder how to answer this question in a way that is, you know, because, you know. We, yeah. I asked it because I feel like a lot of people are like curious about it and wondering about it. You know, mm. that, 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 that question. Maybe I'll say this. I think that there, you know, there's so much happening in the blockchain space that it's hard for me to stay on top of everything that's going on while also being super deep in the identity component. What I will say is that I think a lot of use cases that I hear about for things like NFTs would actually be better done with data off-chain. And the reason for that is blockchains are public and immutable which is like really cool for certain things, but it's also like super duper not cool. It's like the worst nightmare for privacy. It is the it, it is the it is the opposite of worst nightmare. It's the best dream for, you know, a surveillance state if you're talking about things like personal data. When I see somebody saying that they're, you know, you want to put a diploma on chain or something like this or or a legal document on chain, it's like you could do you could get all the same benefits of putting things on chain but make it you know, off-chain, make it non-transferable by putting it into what's called a verifiable credential. And that is the kind of building block of decentralized identity are these verifiable credentials. So you can still do, you can still use private keys to sign things. You can still you know, interact in many of the ways that Web3 native people want to interact, but they can, you can do it in a way where the personally identifiable information is kept off-chain so that you, know, you preserve things like privacy, you make the, you know, the data non-transferable because obviously, you know, NFTs, you can sell them on an open marketplace as opposed to something like, you know, if my doctor is going to do an operation on me, I, I want to make sure that he was the one that actually earned that diploma, not, you know, he didn't buy it on OpenSea or something like that. Right, right. And, and, uh, and finally, I think it's also, frankly, you know, there are laws that require things like the right to be forgotten, particularly in Europe with the GDPR, but those kinds of privacy laws are making their way around the entire world. And when something is immutable, it's hard to, I mean, there's no way to forget the thing. And so many times I, I've, you know, encountered folks who have come to Trinsic because they started out in blockchain ecosystems and realized they, they couldn't meet the compliance, compliance requirements of their use case and decided to, you know, to, to use blockchain for identifiers, but not for putting personal data uh, on chain, right? Very, yeah, very well said. Why don't you, we've kind of been beating around it a little bit, but why don't you tell us specifically 
What does Trinsic do? And maybe also in the context of that, or maybe prior to that, define what a, what a self-sovereign identity platform is or what SSI is. Yeah. Well, SSI or self-sovereign identity is an ideal. It's, it's an ambition or a design aspiration for identity systems that put people at the center of their interactions. So as opposed to some third party holding your data and you need to give them a username and password in order to access your own stuff. In a self-sovereign identity world, you hold your own data and you're in control of it. And you are able to share with third parties, you know, what you need to share and nothing more. Now that's, that's an idealistic state. And there are lots and lots of different technical approaches to trying to end up at that same end. We've talked about blockchain here a little bit, and there are some very crypto heavy approaches to solving that. I think, you know, Trinsic is an approach to solving it. That's a little bit agnostic to that particular question, but that is less crypto heavy. And then there are some kind of more web two type approaches to trying to address a similar problem. But fundamentally the, the model is really just taking what works in the real world, which is we all have a wallet with a bunch of cards and credentials and attestations inside it. And when we go about our life, we take something out of that wallet and show it to somebody to like get the access to the things we need. Self-sovereign identity, generally speaking, is trying to do that digitally, right? Brilliant. If you think about it, a lot of the like most high-flying, you know, venture-backed unicorn identity companies over the last five years have been companies that help you or help businesses like compel users to take a photograph of their plastic driver's licenses and a selfie and do that for like authentication. And it just seems bizarre to me that we're like taking photographs of plastic cards is like the cutting edge here when, you know, what I mean, like we have digitally native payments, we have digitally native messaging, we have digitally native ways of doing all kinds of things online. But identity is still the one reason why you've got to carry around a leather pouch in your pocket everywhere you go. And, you know, that is sort of what we're trying to solve is we're trying to make identity digitally native, just like pretty much everything else in our lives is now. Oh, I love it. That's such a great soundbite. <laughs> why? I mean, why isn't it this way already? What is holding us back? This is the way it should be. What? What's preventing us from already having this experience? Oh, man. I've asked myself that question hundreds of times. Yeah, the short answer is it's really hard. Like that, I mean, it is actually a very, very hard problem to solve. Like it's one of those things where when I started here and I called Michael and I, you know, it was a month in and I said, oh, Michael, like, let's do something here. There's some problem, you know, there's something here. We're like six years in and we're still peeling back layers of the onion. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing how deep some of these problems go. But I think the short answer is that in order for the reason that my Gmail can send emails to your Outlook is because there's a standard that enables that. And the reason that my iMessage can't send messages to your WhatsApp is because there's not a standard way of doing it. So when there's a standard way of doing things, you can ecosystems can emerge in different ways than if they are done in proprietary kind of siloed ways. And there is a massive graveyard of companies that have tried to build the identity system or the identity layer of the internet or whatever. Even companies like Microsoft have tried a number of times with Microsoft Passport and information cards and different projects to, to try to create essentially what we're talking about here. But ultimately, if, if something is owned by a single company, it won't be trusted universally and it has a single point of failure. And when you're talking about something as sensitive as identity information, which requires buy-in from, I mean, think about the places you use your identity. It's everywhere from your government to all of the financial institutions and products you interact with. You use it in health, your healthcare and managing with insurance and your providers. I mean, you use it to like, even down to like subscribing to newsletters or buying a pair of shoes. Like it is, it is an inherent part of every interaction across your entire life. And to expect that one company can own all of that is has proven to like not be something that is possible. So a couple of years ago, 
a new standard was developed called verifiable credentials. I alluded to it earlier. And the verifiable credentials standard is really the first time that enough people have come together up on a single standard that that I think there's hope. And, you know, there's a general consensus in the, you know, Nerati, which is what us identity nerds call all of the like <laughs> All of the, you know, frankly, mostly old white male, like Silicon Valley or Seattle based kind of, you know, architects of all the, you know, old identity systems that we all interact with today, right? Do they have a logo that like you can read it every way and it reads identity? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, they should. But yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's like there's really consensus in the digital identity community that, that like there's something happening here that like and now we have the amount of sort of buy in on a standardized way of doing this that we need to really you know, drive something forward in a way that like companies can adopt. So instead of having Microsoft have to sell their solution to every single bar across the United States or something in order for the bar to verify people's identities, now there's a standardized way of doing it. So now there can be a hundred different startups that are selling to the bars and a hundred different startups selling to the DMVs and all of the credentials that are issued and all of the identities that are in the system will be interoperable with each other in the same way that Today, I can buy any pair of Bluetooth-enabled headphones, and they work with my Bluetooth-enabled devices. I don't have to worry if it's like an Apple headphones or a Bose headphones. I just know that if it's like Bluetooth-enabled, it's going to work with my Windows device. You know what I mean? Yep. And that is the power of standards, and that's what's happening right now in the digital identity space. I'm being a little bit simplistic because, of, again, this goes really deep, and we could talk about you know, I don't Anyway, there's lots to talk about here, but I think you did a great job laying it out there, at least, at least on the surface. So, so, so essentially what Trinsic is doing, you're using the verifiable credentials standard and what, what, how are you, how is, how are you, what's the business strategy or kind of your, your approach and your go-to-market? Well, less, as you know, startups go through the kind of the woods of product market fit until they find what sticks. And right now we are at yeah, there's, there's the woods, there's the swamp, there's the yes. valley of death, the pit of so despair. So let me tell you where we started and let me tell you where we're at today. Please. And then, you know, have me on in a year and we can talk about where we're at then. All right, deal. But uh, yeah, where we started was we thought this standard is going to be important. Let's make a really easy to use API that so any developer can use this standard for any purpose, right? It's just like the auth zero for verifiable credentials or something like that, the stripe of verifiable credentials, right? That was the initial concept. And we got a lot of traction, you know, among the developer community that way. And it was a really good, I think, start. I think what we learned is that by being completely unopinionated in that way, it was a little bit hard to find the kind of the the killer use case or whatever, or, or by, by productizing it a little bit more for those optimal use cases, we could, you know, achieve more success essentially. And so instead of being a completely generic platform that just helps people do verifiable credentials today, what we did is we really doubled down on what are our most successful customers using verifiable credentials for. And, you know, that took a, a, you know, a lot of time of, you know, peeling back lots of layers of lots of onions and, and pattern matching over, over, you know, hundreds of conversations. And what we realized was that our customers were using verifiable credentials to make personal data reusable across different applications and contexts. They were using it to make personal data reusable, composable, and interoperable across different applications. And and to unlock that data from the silos where it was kept, right? Like right now your DMV database has your info and it's in that silo and it's really hard to get it out of that silo. And if you can get it out of that silo and into your hands in an interoperable format, you can do lots of things with it. You know, it opens up lots of possibilities. It turns out that is exactly how people, that is exactly how developers use open banking and tools like Plaid. Your banking data is in a silo. It's in your bank. And Plaid and other open banking tools allow you to take the data out of the bank silo and put it into fintech apps where it can be useful for different things like budgeting or getting a loan or verifying your income or whatever the use case may be. So what we realized is- And it gives me control as well too to say, 
this single data element, yes, share that. But this other stuff, no, 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 no. I'm controlling what specifically? Is that right? That's right. And now instead of you know needing to only have your whatever bit, whatever app your bank or local credit union or something provides at your disposal, now you can take the data from the bank, but you can view it and use it in any number of applications developed by any number of fintech developers that are trying to solve a niche problem for you. So, you know, there are like fintech apps for nurses, right? There are fintech apps for couples who are cohabitating, but not yet married. And they have unique needs that like these fintech apps will like solve, you know, there's, yeah. you're, you're able to essentially create, you, consumers get a lot more choice and a lot more flexibility, you know, through these products. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, we re- when we realized that's what people were using Trinsic for, we, we've, you know, kind of done a few pivots and have been doubled down on that value proposition. And now our customer segment that we target, we call ID tech companies. They're like what FinTech is, you know, to consumers, what FinTech products are to consumers, ID tech products do, you know, a similar thing and enable you to use your identity to get access to all kinds of different products and services you wouldn't otherwise have been able to get. And, and, and we, you know, power that by being the infrastructure for this new wave of ID tech products that are being built. Brilliant navigation of the woods. I mean, you, that's really cool where you ended up. We're, I want to talk about ID tech, but before we go there, I want to know more generally, how's the journey been as a founder in Utah, in the Rockies? Like, wh- What's it been like? What advice would you have to give? Maybe highlight, tell us a little bit about kind of some of the fundraising you know, series you've done over the years. Just give us a little color on your journey as a founder. Yeah, well, my journey as a founder has overlapped with the last three year, or last four years of the world, which has been, you know, best time uh, ever to be a founder. Is oh, that yeah. what you're saying? Well, I'm just saying that's it's like crazy, you know, crazy time in the world, crazy time being a founder. And then totally. I also, you know, when we decided to start this company, my wife was pregnant. She's like, what are you doing? And, you know, anyway, we had to have that conversation. <laughs> so I kind of have like new, new family, new dad, new company and startup, as well as like a whole new world we're entering into right now, all at the same time. So it's been a lot, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, I feel like, yeah, it's been a lot, but it's been good. I can't complain. Lots of growth, awesome. lots, lots of, you know, late nights and early mornings, but a lot of, you know, fulfillment as well. People say that startups are a roller coaster and, you know, the highs are high and the lows are low. And I think that's like, you know, really true. But uh, I feel like it's more like a tilt a whirl on a roller coaster. <laughs> you agree with yeah, that? because sometimes you don't actually know where you are, and you only know where you are when you look back and you're like, "Oh, that was a low." Jeez, like, yeah, that sucked. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. but in the moment, you're just too consumed with everything happening that you can't really recognize it. So, yeah, that's a good analogy. Tell us about tell us about just kind of your, you know, raising capital during these these last few years. What that's been like. And how you're thinking about kind of as a, from a founder's perspective, how are you thinking about the current environment? Kind of had this, you know, I think one thing I learned is like trying to time the market or think too much about the macro environment is not the most productive way for me to spend my mental resources, right? The first time we raised money, we, we met with a kickstart seed fund in Salt Lake. They were, you know, investors in, in Michael's the company Michael's dad co-founded called Clarivine, and they had seen something on LinkedIn from Michael's dad sharing some update that we had had. And we ended up getting a term sheet from them during a time when we were not intending on raising. And I thought to myself, I bet we can land a few more customers. We can just hold out bootstrap a little bit longer, and maybe we can get a little bit higher valuation or take a little bit less dilution here in a few you know, months. So I held out. I said, not yet. I really like your firm, but we don't want to raise money just yet. And so we kept on waiting. And then <clears throat> the pandemic struck and the world shut down. And actually, as a part of that shutdown, Sovereign Foundation, where I had previously worked and which was serving as a sort of supplier to Trinsic at that point in time, because we were using their blockchain, right? Like, it was, you know, Sovereign laid off all of their employees on a single day, 25 people. So on the Tuesday, they had 25 employees and by Thursday they had zero, not even the CEO or, or anything. And then the whole board of directors resigned and 
I was asked to come fill in as like an interim board director of Sovereign because I had the experience of both working there and as like a current, like, you know, person with interest in Sovereign continuing to succeed. So it was just a crazy, crazy time. So when that was all happening, I called Kickstart and said, hey, remember that term sheet you gave us a few months ago? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, well, you know, it's a, it's a different world now. We, we're not even meeting in person. We have this like rule to like, we're not, you know, we, we're not doing any in-person stuff. It's all remote. And I said, well, can you just meet me tomorrow morning just for, you know, a short, anyway, so we met this that morning. before people were even meeting on Zoom to do term sheets, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the term sheet was from previously in person. Then we ended up meeting that morning. It was the last in-person meeting that they took before the, you know, the really went off. And then we, end, we ended up, you know, walking away from that meeting with a, you know, handshake. They agreed to like honor the terms they had given us a few months prior, which was really, really good on them. Yeah. And, but I say that to say that we raised at a not good time. Turns out if we would have actually waited a few more months, <laughs> things actually picked back up and it would have been fine. But My because we raised sight. like right at like the most uncertain point of COVID, it was a little bit of a, you know, not, not optimal time to raise. Fast forward, you know, to our next fundraise and we had a, a, a VC firm that was using our product. And I thought, this is interesting. I wonder what use case they are doing. It was a VC firm called Georgian out of Toronto. And they have about 50 engineers on staff that do research and development and software development for portfolio companies, particularly on things related to AI and machine learning and, and Web3. So they were actually doing a project for a portfolio company using self-sovereign identity. And they, they selected Trinsic's platform as the product to do it on. So I, I ended up getting in touch with them, getting on a call. One thing led to another. And, you know, Georgian, Georgian's engineering team referred us to the investment team at Georgian. And, you know, fast forward a few months and Georgian, you know, led our next round. And at that point, I had learned the lesson from the time before. And I thought, you know, we're not going to, I'm not going to overthink this. I'm not going to try to time it per se. I'm, you know, this is a, a good firm that already knows us and likes us because they were a customer first. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to go, you know, we're going to go there. And it turns out that was like a very, very good time to raise the second time, because, you know, a few months after we closed that we had, uh, you know, the world changed again. And uh, so, so in total, we've raised between the pre-seed that, that Kickstart did, which was a sub million dollar round and the round that Georgian led early last year, which was an eight and a half million dollar seed round we raised almost, you know, it was like nine and a half, almost. Great. So, so hopefully sufficiently capitalized to get through the next woods. I mean, there's we, always a woods, right? After, after that seed round, you know, I think we had like, I went to a CEO conference a few months later after the world had kind of changed and people were concerned about runway and like their ability to raise. And they did this exercise asking, you know, how many of you have, you know, six months of runway or less? And how many of you have, you know, and we did this show of hands thing. And I ended up being the last one with my hand up and they were like, because they said, you know, 36 months or longer. And I still had my hand up and they were like, how much runway do you have? And I said, about seven, seven years, two months at this point, <laughs> because, <laughs> we, you know, we had a pretty small team and you know, the, the round ended up being larger than we, you know, yeah. were necessarily expecting it to be. So yeah, we are in a good spot. We're able to really um, have the time we need to, to solve the problems we need to solve and, and things are going well there. So, so definitely feeling, you know, optimistic and good about where we're at. What are you excited about just on the, uh, from the company perspective over the next kind of 12 months? Any big, big things you're really, you know, getting, building excitement for? Yeah, there's a lot happening right now in various areas. I think that with, you know, a few of our kind of customer segments, one is these ID tech products continue, we continue to see new ID tech products starting and solving problems in different areas, you know, staff passport to help doctors move more seamlessly between you know, hospitals and, and serving patients better. We see a car manufacturer interested in how self-driving cars can prove to police officers that they're properly licensed when there's no driver to pull a piece of paper out of the glove compartment. You know what I mean? Like things like that, just really cool use cases that, that will actually move the needle and matter. We're seeing it in, in AI where we start to think, okay, if you've got an autonomous agent doing tasks on your behalf, how will that AI be able to do something useful like book you an airplane if it doesn't know your name and your passport number and your you know payment info, right? Like, of course, if, if we want these agents to start doing useful things for us, they're going to need to know things about us. And we are going to hopefully 
you know, care a little bit about our privacy there. And we're not going to just insert our passport number into like the prompt that we give the, the AI or something, right? Um, I shouldn't do that. I just, I was in GPT <laughs> the other day. I shouldn't be given like all my personal information to it. Or Yeah, it might be something you want to double check. <laughs> yeah. So I guess there's just, there's a lot. I think no matter where you think the future of the web is going, if, you, if you're a total web three diehard and you think that's the way the web is going, like, decentralized identity matters in that future. If you think the web is going to a world of kind of connected devices and these autonomous vehicles and sensors everywhere and IoT products galore, like like identity matters there. And if you think the future of the internet is going to be consumed with, you know, AI bots and everyone's going to have personal agents that do things on their behalf and need access controls and permissions and, you know, identity matters in that world too. So we're in a, we're in a, a good spot to where, you know, what we're building is relevant for people doing innovative things in all kinds of areas. And it's just really, really exciting to kind of be a part of it and watch it all unfold. Yeah. Wow. Identity matters. I love it. Uh, I got two more questions. The first is we've been talking a lot. Well, we've been talking about ID tech, but also we've been talking a lot about fintech and kind of the analog, this like comparison you know, fintech's been all the rage over the past decade, right? I mean, especially in the startup space, I think in the 2020s, it's like something like nearly 20% of all unicorns over the past kind of three years have been fintech companies. It seems like a similar revolution is perhaps emerging in the field of digital identity. What What are your, it sounds like you're long on this. I know. That's our what, bet. What, yeah. So tell, what, tell us about like, what does the future hold or what should our investors who listen to the episode be thinking about? you know, when they think about the opportunities in ID tech over the next, you know, decade. Like I say, identity is so big. It touches every part of our lives. And the only other thing that like touches so many parts of our lives is probably fintech, right? Like there's some kind of kind of economic exchange happening all over the place, but they're also, you know, part of that equation is the trust exchange. Obviously, if there's less trust means there's more risk, which means, you know, insurance premiums go up or like whatever, right? Or like the risk of the transaction goes up or something. And and in fact, a lot of the products that we use today are just, you know, they just price in the risk of like fraud and things like that into the price. And so I guess trust, identity, and money all go really, you know, closely hand in hand. I think the emergence of like, we're able to unlock our financial data from one silo and look at all the use cases that have emerged from that. I think we're seeing the same thing, again, happen in identity, where when we can unlock your data from its silos and make it reusable and composable, we're seeing all kinds of interesting use cases. I think the really thing that I'm really excited about right now is that in addition to kind of, there's first wave fintech and maybe second wave, I don't know, there's probably somebody who's like mapped out different waves. I'm not thinking about a specific framework here, but I guess at a certain point, at a certain wave, Uh, we started to see embedded fintech products where there are companies with existing products and services, maybe it's vertical SaaS, maybe it's consumer products or marketplaces or something. They begin to offer an embedded fintech offering to make their product more sticky and increase its margins. And we're starting to see that in identity, like background check companies that are offering like a background check, a reusable background check credential that they give to the individual that the individual can then, you know, they, they apply for a new job, they get a background check. But now they can go volunteer at the local Boys and Girls Club because they can prove that they were background checked recently in a way that is verifiable and interoperable. And then, you know, they can go to the food bank and present it there. And then they can go to the church and present it there. And they can do, you know, you know, all kinds of things with that once they have it. And so I think, yeah, this is definitely our bet. I'm really, you know, bullish on on the kinds of things that this enables. And I continue to be surprised by the products that our customers end up building. Oh man, it's so it's going to be so exciting to watch, and specifically, you're going to be exciting to watch. I have to say, you know, and that leads me to my last question. I always like to ask kind of a fun one, and for you, you know, when I think about certain founders that I've met through the show and through my job, you know, every once in a while you come across one where it's like I can't imagine this founder doing anything else. Like this is so who they are. It's so how they think, and that's you. I, I mean that very sincerely. If you weren't the founder of Trinsic, I want to know, what do you think you'd be doing in life right now? What would, 
and a different version of Riley Hughes be doing in this world if you weren't the founder of Trinsic. <laughs> yeah, I'm one of those people that every every college class that I took, I wanted to switch my major to that thing because <laughs> I get like so interested. Everything's so interesting, I feel like. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that's a really good question. Shock me with something just wild that you've always been excited about or like you, you've, you've maybe thought about pursuing at some point in your life. There are a lot of problems that feel really compelling that I have no idea where I would start. But maybe, I, th I think that if I never would have gotten involved in identity, I would have thought that about identity. So, right, because it just seems like such a, like a, I don't know. So I think if there's a problem that I could go tackle, I would really be interested in addressing problems related to politics and our political systems in the U.S. I would love to try to break some of the gridlock and solve some real problems for people and hope, hope that we could do more, you know, to be, I am someone who thinks that ideological consistency is a valuable trait that I think we could use more of in this country. And I think that there's a lot of missed opportunity that we have because of partisanship. So I have zero clue where I would start with that. But maybe if instead of going into identity, I went into that, I would have found something to like address it. But if, well if anybody, said. you know, if, <clears throat> if anybody you know is working on that or something and has interesting things to, you know, share, I would be interested in, in, in you know, hearing about very, what they're doing. Very well said. And thank you for sharing that. And by the way, there's probably some adjacencies with identity, even in that, even in that space, right? Yeah, for sure. All right, Riley, it has been such a pleasure as I knew it would be to have you on the show. To conclude, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about where they can find you and Trinsic online? Yeah, well, if this is interesting and you want to hear some stories from our customers and others in our space, I host a podcast as well. It's called the Future of Identity podcast, and it is a lot of fun. We talk to ID tech builders who are doing things in you know all kinds of verticals and domains and applying this technology in cool ways. So that's a fun one. You can find me on Twitter at Riley P. Hughes and LinkedIn, and Trinsic at Trinsic.id. Identity matters. Thank you, Riley. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Les. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to nextfrontiercapital.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop every two weeks. We'll see you next time.